0: One, two, three, four. hello and welcome to it starts with beer i'm your host will sis and on today's episode i talk with author tom acatelli about his new book pilsner which covers the lengthy history of this beer style and how it interacted with world events along the way this episode is brought to you by Back East Brewing in Bloomfield Connecticut their recent taproom expansion with indoor and outdoor seating makes Back East the perfect place to enjoy excellent beers like Ice Cream Man IPA Recautra IPA their award winning porter or any of the other delicious beers in their ever changing lineup Go to backeastbrewing.com for more information. Now, I've been a fan of Tom Accatelli since uh, he wrote his uh, history of craft beer called The Audacity of Hops, which is also excellent. I was so happy to be able to talk to him about his research, uh, the characters that were instrumental in making this history book, Pilsner, and uh, more. So, stay tuned after the interview for The After Party. Let's listen in. So, before we get into your book, uh, which I loved, um, I wanted to clear some things up for listeners who not, might not, you know, really know. I've heard people mix up pilsner and lager, and you note in your book that for a long time, beer basically meant pilsner. I've always... Told people, well, lager is the, you know, the big category, and pilsner is a subcategory, but that doesn't seem very, you know, nuanced. How, how do you go about explaining what pilsner is?
1: Well, pilsner is the style that was invented in what's now the Czech Republic in 1842, and it was literally invented. It was developed by a particular brewery by a particular brewmaster under certain conditions. But it grew so popular relatively quickly that it became heavily imitated and basically took off at a time when lager, not ale necessarily, although ale was was a little bit too, getting uh, paler and clearer. I mean, not necessarily trans, transparent, but sort of golden or straw colored or, or sunshine colored or whatever you want to call it. And so what I tell people is there's Pilsner, that exact style, and the the Pilsners you see to this day. But it became such an imitated style that it became sort of one with with a lot of lager, especially the more successful brands and beers throughout the last nearly 200 years. The Budweiser, Miller Lite, Heineken, which used to – Miller Lite bills itself as a Pilsner to this day. Heineken used to slap Pilsner on the packaging – uh, Budweiser was inspired by pilsner back uh, by European uh, pilsners, so um, so yeah, so it's the, the style itself and its imitators.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it almost seems like um, you know the, you can be a purist about it, or you know you can, oh. <laughs> uh, or you can say you know it's interpretive or something like that. You know.
1: Yeah, we love the purists. but no, no, I love. Yeah, I, it can really touch off a debate because it is interesting. I mean, it, it, it literally. It it was born in an era when beer was – when styles were usually distinct to a geography, right? Right,
0: sure, you know,
1: sure. Exactly. So certain certain beers grew up in certain parts of Germany, and they assumed those names. You know, Berliner Weiss, obviously, for example. Mm-hmm. Pale Ale came screaming out of northern England. Uh, you know, the uh, steam beer was in California. So, you know, the purists are right in a way – the problem is, and I cover this in, in the book, there the original brewery that did it, the Burgers Brewery in Pilsen, which you can still, you know, you can still visit the site, you can still visit the town, it's lovely, you know, once this awful pandemic passes.
0: It's called again uh, they, re- they, repeat that again, Burgers Brewery, right? Burgers
1: Brewery. Basically the the, the gentleman in this in this city in the eighteen hundreds had inherited rights to brewing, you know, at a time when, obviously, brewing in Central Europe, and we're talking about Central Europe, so it's very, Central and Northern Europe, it's very lucrative, and they had the, the, the rights to brewing and to brewing, into the sales of beer, and basically, long story short, uh, fascinating story short, they got tired of the imports coming in from Bavaria, these sort of light, lighter, lighter-tasting lagers that were a real hit and were just like the cleanest crispest beers anybody in living memory had ever seen or ever tasted so they start their own brewery the burgers get together and say look we're tired of losing business we're going to hire a Bavarian we're going to use Bavarian techniques and we're going to get the best ingredients and use this nice soft water we have and we're going to make a lager
0: like them very planned out you know it's very yes yeah there so it, this wasn't but, uh, stumbled upon when it came up, you know, when it came to this. This was something they said we're gonna make the stars align, and we have the money to do it.
1: Yes, they they did in a way stumble upon the lightness or the light coloredness, right? But roasting technology for decades at this point was bending toward lighter. You know, you had Vienna Lager just before the the development of Pilsner. Um, you had you know pale ale. Uh, you know, several decades before, and and you had uh, Marsen, you know marzen beer, right? Which was also lighter colored. If you tour the Spaten brewery now, if you can, uh, they, they have a. It's in Munich, and I, I cover Spaten a lot because uh, Gabriel Settemeyer was very influential in inspiring sort of the race for lighter colored lagers in the 19th century, and his family controlled what was that was Spaten. They don't control it anymore, but. If you go on the tour, they take you in this, uh, this cellar and they show you a chart which basically shows how you know beer goes from whatever, porter and stout, like the darkest you can imagine. Sure. And maybe it travels through barley wine or, or pale ales, IPAs, whatever, and, and basically ends in Pilsner. And, just, and there's gradients of lightness, mm. but the brightest and the lightest is Pilsner.
0: Sure, sure. And the idea, I mean, to me, it sounded like the story. And one of the things I get from from your book, Pilsner, is a history lesson, and a geography lesson. And so it, it sounds like there's a role from the English, that's, they, they were the ones that really kind of figured out how to make that, uh, you know, that use that pale malt, you've got the Bohemians, and then you've got the Germans, or I guess, specifically the Bavarians. And, um, you know, those three kind of came together. Pilsner is a collaborative uh, collaborative uh, style.
1: There was a technological history and a technolo- technological, cha- technological changes in the brewing industry and beyond that was happening around the mid-19th century. You had you know, an explosion of new technologies. We think of photography, uh, the railroad, um, any, uh, the penny post, any number of innovations, uh, steam, the, uh, steamers across the Atlantic. You know, uh, so there was this sort of atmosphere of experimentation and, you know, humankind taking these leaps uh, forward. But the other thing was, you know, the political. And one of the things there was, uh, you know, going back to the Middle Ages in Bavaria, for one, for various reasons, you know, some people say it was a bit uh, tax-related. One was simply to keep the, another reason says it was to simply keep the citizenry really happy and the rabble from uh, revolting was the development of the Reinheitsgebot, which I hope I pronounced correctly. I never know if I do. Sounds great. Yeah. Yes.
0: Reinheitsgebot. <laughs> yes. yes.
1: This is in yeah, yeah. the Bavaria. And it stipulates that beer can only be made from a handful of ingredients, you know, the hops, the barley, uh, um, the water. They didn't necessarily know about the, the full roll of yeast at that point. But the Reinheitsgebot has this effect of kind of making, of of putting Bavarian brewers within parameters, right? And they can only experiment in this little field, right? So the tinkering Mm. goes on beyond the Bavarian border. But Bavarians get very good at making lager. I mean, they they, they shoot ahead of the field as far as the engineering goes. And they take the uh, malting technology from england and they bring it here and they uh they they turn it, they bend it toward their own ends and so you have this by the 18, early 1840s you have about a, two generations of bavarian brewers including joseph grohl who is the who was the originator of pilsner and the, with the burger who the burger brewers the burgers uh, hired to come to pilsen
0: and he turns out to be a fascinating character in your book too, which we could talk about. Once Pilsen's born, once it's once it's sort of out of the
1: cradle, it's off to the races. It's riding the steamers, it's on the railroads. It, it's uh, uh, later on in the century, it's seizing on pasteurization and refrigeration, and it you uh, uh, even bottling and use of glass. I mean, it looked it was a, it just looked great in glass, which was being mass produced for the first time in history. Another technological advancement that played the Pilsner's uh, rise. I mean, I, I say in the book, you know, it, took, it picked the perfect time to be born and the perfect time to leave home.
0: In the right place, at the right time, if it had been... Oh, that would have been even better. I didn't...
1: Well, okay, I didn't uh, think of it. Yeah, 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 that's okay.
0: You got to run all this stuff through <laughs> me first now. No, uh, but, but I thought of Forrest Gump. You know, this is like Pilsner just kept running into these great opportunities. And then, yeah, absolutely. It was like... Nope, it's time to go. If it had been 50 years prior, we you know it might have been mm-hmm. this regional cool regional beer, which it would have taken another hundred years, you know f- for it to really make out. But uh, you know the the idea that it was embraced um, is not surprising, but it is it, okay, so it's not surprising if you put yourself back in history. for someone mm-hmm. who has only come to craft beer recently and knows nothing except, you know, bubblegum hazies (laughs) or whatever is the hot (laughs) beer. Uh, This might seem surprising, or if their only uh, uh, interaction with Pilsner is is Budweiser, but but that's another story. Uh, One of the uh, elements of the book that I like so much also is that you really see a development of of these characters from, uh, you know, you mentioned... um, you know, monks and brewers and scientists and brewery owners. Um, one of my favorites, though, was this Joseph Grohl. He sounded like, you know, a real curmudgeon um, uh, brewer. Uh, and you even, you, you take him from, you know, his his early years all the way to his death, which I thought was really cool. Tell me a little bit about how you went about choosing the characters that you were going to highlight in Pilsner.
1: Well, I wanted to have the key characters. I, you know, obviously, I want to I wanted to tell the stories of the people who were directly involved with this development and its rise. Okay, so you're going to have Grohl. you're going to have Adolphus Bush, uh, Frederick Paps, Frederick Miller, um, you know, Freddie Heineken in the 20th century, uh, Gussie Bush. You're going to have these folks who furthered it along, and I, and I also mentioned you know that some of the brewmasters and the brewing VPs at the big conglomerates because they really. Oversaw and, and continue to oversee these engineering feats of turning out these beers inspired by Pilsner or actual Pilsners that taste the same no matter where they're made. So there's direct characters, you know, but there's also people sure. who tangentially influence, right? So Gabriel um Anton Dreher, the, these these characters from the 19th century, and Louis Pasteur, of course, who who develop things that either inspire the development and rise of Pilsner or aid it directly. Um, and you know, then there's also the characters of, of events. Um, mm. the, war played a big role in, in the rise, sure. rising popularity of the beer style, and so did prohibition, especially in the United States. So.
0: Let's talk a little bit about um, one of those big elements. Uh, we'll we're, we're compare these two, these two, these two historical uh, periods. World War One seemed to be a time of real. Because now, by now, this the Pilsner has made the journey over to America. It 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 may have had a real down downward effect, uh, da- uh, negative effect against Germans, whereas World War II didn't have that same effect as much in America. Tell me about how Pilsner um, uh, survived the period of World War One and how it thrived in World War Two.
1: It enters World War One. It enters the you know the, the second decade second decade of the 20th century is the most popular beer style. It's all over the place. It's it's long left uh, the you know the Austrian Empire at the time. Now we call it you know, the Czech Republic, and it's it's just dominant. It's just rolling off assembly lines from you know uh, East Asia to the Eastern United States. And it's it's the style right. And it's you know there's still a very busy active beer universe especially locally in places like belgium and germany but it's clear Pilsner is going to sweep everything right it's all just tilting toward Pilsner. but the thing is that the major pilger producers in the world except for heineken in the netherlands were all i you know owned or controlled by germans or german americans right and so the first world war rolls around it's 1914 And there's just mass German anti-German hysteria, especially in the United States, but also in the UK and France and the UK, of course is the major market outside of Germany and Europe. And the U S is on its way at this point to being the biggest beer, beer country in the world. So yeah, so, so World War one sort of slams the brakes on these brewing dynasties and the proliferation of Pilsner. And it, also comes at a time when there's this rising temperance movement, right? And so the temperance advocates who want, uh, you know, who want prohibition in the U.S. seize on hysteria, and you know they don't let the crisis go to waste. Sure. And lo and behold, in the year after, you have, you know, the 18th Amendment, and that's it. That's prohibition and the Volstead Act, and you know, uh, manufacture and sale of most alcohol in the United States is illegal for 13 years. But to get to the other question, so World War II rolls around, it's a totally different set of circumstances, right? right? Um, prohibition was such an awful experience for the United States for, for 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 many reasons. I mean, it it did the trick in that it reduced consumption, but it had so many other uh, bad effects. Most and probably, it, and crime. it gave
0: women uh, a more prominent role, I think, in politics than they probably would have prior, but you know that's just that's just yes. trying to really find the seeds of something good out of something that was basically horrible
1: <laughs> right misguided I would yeah I would yeah horrible I would say it mis- just was misguided they they should have uh, leaned more on the temperance aspect and less on the prohibition
0: what do, do you think just just kind of alternative history thinking here if for some reason, Germany had really shared the credit, or, or really be, uh, maybe somehow another country uh, became ascendant along with them, so that we associated beer with England and Germany equally. Uh, say there was a big, you know, brown ale, you know, love mm-hmm. uh, for some reason, uh, you know, a big, por- you know, porter boom. <laughs> um, do you think that the prohibition would have happened? That's a very good question. I think, well, you know, it's interesting. I actually think,
1: I actually think no, because there had been, in fits and starts, going back to the 1840s, uh, successes in pro- prohibiting alcohol sale and, and manufacture in, in different states. So, you know, but it had never, it, lifetimes were passing and nothing was happening at a national level. I think they needed that, the anti German bigotry that came up in, in 1914 to sort of get them over the hump. I really do
0: taking advantage you know, of I mean, that even, uh, of that you know fury. They they they're like, look, let's 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 uh, let's get mm-hmm. our needs met, even if it means uh, you know tarnishing these reputations. One of the
1: one of the points of evidence you can point to as far as whether you know prohibition was successful or or was something that the country should look back with pride on was you know when World War II rolled around. I mean, there was, of course, much more understandably, you know, the Germans this time around were far more brutal. And it was going to be a very different kind of war as far as objective. And I but there was no talk at all of any sort of, uh, you know, prohibitionist attitude or movement in fact the, the military brass and the Roosevelt administration made sure that soldiers and sailors had access to
0: Big theater. difference, right? Right? So, no talk of uh, freedom cabbage or anything like that. I know my grandfather um, was German American. I mean, technically our family's well, from Poland, but they they were you know German in ancestry. And he, you know, spoke German sure. and, you know, signed up for uh, World War, you know, World War II as an American. And, you know, it, it, the, the, he said that the pride of Germans in America was unmatched, at least in Patterson, New Jersey. Um, and I'm sure it, it uh-huh. spread oh, out, true. you know, throughout. Uh, yeah, very, you know, very different. So by then, you know, it, it beer had cemented itself. And again, as, when we talk about beer, we're talking about Pilsner had cemented itself Um you know in that uh, in in people's hearts, one of the other elements of the story is that, you know, Pilsner starts out not really like an underdog, but you know, you kind of like see that growth and you're you kind of rooting for it and it's growing and growing. And then, you know, eventually it kind of becomes the bully <laughs> or it becomes the only game you're in right. town. And I just you know, I, I don't I, I don't read enough history. but when I do, I, I I'm always shocked and i and I think to myself, why were so many people um, satisfied with this one style of beer? I mean, you know, even if you had, uh-huh. uh, whether it was Schlitz or um, you were able to get Blatz or you are able to get uh, other other uh-huh. brewers, Pilsner, were they essentially, I guess we're up to the 40s and 50s now, were they essentially the same tasting beer or, or you know, would the discerning palate really be able to... To catch the difference is an American version of Pilsner.
1: Pilsner in the U.S. and the versions and the beers inspired by Pilsner probably did taste, to the discerning palate, different than Europe. But in the U.S., they probably all tasted the same. Mm. Um, I, but I think there is a tendency to look back, you know, especially from our perch now, where we have so much variety and so many styles and so much, so many options and choices. To think, well, gosh, you know, it must have been some sort of cabal, evil cabal that, you know, forced the world to settle on this one style and one idea of what beer is supposed to be. Exactly right. You know, water, kind of what, and that's, you know, I used to subscribe to that too, and, you know, or at least think, you know, sure, there's some reason that we just don't know about, or that, you know, if if it just the marketers took over. That's true in a respect, you know. They, they there there was like the Budweiser Hour on early network TV back in the fifties, but the other thing is that you know it was consumer taste. It just bent toward this style of beer. Uh, Americans wanted sweeter. They wanted a modern looking beer. They wanted lower alcohol so they could put more away, and they wanted um, just they, they wanted something that looked like the TV dinners and the sort of, you know, mass-produced food that was becoming more prominent at the same time. And, you know, these com- more complex ales and heavier beers, they just didn't fit the bill. And this is where you sort of see the modern, the the, the world, of, the beer world that we inhabit sort of take shape.
0: Yeah, it, it was an era of, uh, you know, uh, streamlined and peppy and... Um, yeah uh, wholesome. And I think that that plays mm-hmm. a role that where, where, where Pilsner just kind of goes down easy and you keep on keep on going. Um, and so yeah, I, I think that I, you know anyone who reads this book, you know you put it in, in very good historical context and that's what you need to keep in mind that you know all, Pilsner grew up and thrived and continues to thrive in its own individual eras. Mm-hmm. Which one, exactly. which era, you know, throughout the history of, uh, of Pilsner as you were doing the research, were you particularly excited about? What did you linger on when you were doing your research?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, well, there were probably two periods, just because I, I, I'm kind of a history nut, and I, I really enjoyed explaining, I mean, discovering myself and then being able to explain it, the sort of era that Pilsner was born in. It was just such a transformative era in technology and science and politics. I mean, it was just, it, it, one, of, one of the big reasons that we have, th- that it's the dominant style and that we, you know, we have the counter reaction to it of the craft beer movement and we have our modern beer world is because there was so much political upheaval in 1840s Europe. There was just a series of revolutions and counter-revolutions. And so in by the late 1840s and, and throughout the 19, 1850s, a lot of Germans and Czechs, I mean hundreds of thousands, were like, we're out of here. We're done with the, with the constant wars and the armies crossing borders. We're just done. Right, they
0: were, they were moving so out.
1: They, yeah. And they, there was a mass emigration to the United States, and a lot of a lot of these folks settled in the northeast and the upper Midwest, you know, in Milwaukee and Chicago and St. Louis. And they bring with them their German culture. And one of the big parts of German culture then and now is beer and specifically lager and drinking in beer gardens and not getting in the beer gardens being family friendly and not getting too drunk. And this of course uh, had amazed you know, shocked Americans who were already here. You know, they they uh couldn't believe it, you know, like alcohol was either uh, a net evil or, you know, the rot gut of whiskey or a net positive. And, and you, you couldn't have you know, there couldn't be a middle ground. Sure, um, sure, So I really enjoyed that. And that took me through the Civil War, of course, and Germans, German Americans played a major role there and so did beer. And then I, I really enjoyed too writing about uh, the sort of, uh, you know, the run up to what we just talked about, about World War One, I. I, I was just Fantastic! I had no idea of the anti-German hysteria at the time, and the the sort of uh, the seizure by the temperance advocates and their political allies on the brewers in the U.S. You know, I mentioned earlier that Adolphus Bush um, died in Germany. You know, his wife was with him, Lily, and she she couldn't come back for a while. Oh, yeah. You know, and she was suspected. Of, yeah, she was suspected of German sympathies and being an agent of the Kaiser and it just was. It's just fascinating. Beer, beer
0: has so many layers, and as you know, you know, really, like there's so much to it once you start feeling it back. So, um, when when you were doing your research, did you come across material that you hadn't seen in other books? I know that you know you you have a a, a healthy acknowledgement section, and you can definitely uh, talk about your you know your sources in a very clear way. Did, what was your favorite part about the research? Did you did you come across anything that was like an oh wow moment? Well,
1: I, I, really enjoyed my visit to Pilsen. That was fantastic. Yeah, but... Uh, I, I, but I, I had, um, you know, a great, great resource for me was a, a, a writer named, a writer who actually lives in the Czech Republic named Evan rail. And he translated a lot of the original documents and uh, correspondence related to the development of Pilsner back then. So that was a big help. Um, I, you know, I, Took full advantage of the resources of the major brewers, uh, you know, like Heineken and Anheuser-Busch. Um, I had a great help from the, and I always mispronounce this, but the American Anna Association. Yes,
0: yes, I stumble um, on that. Say
1: saying... they, yeah, they, they they digitized the Western Brewer uh, magazine and reporting, so that was a big help oh, sure. uh, from way back the nineteenth century. Right,
0: right. You're quoting. And there was them,
1: a, yeah. and there's a great book. Um, uh, by a gentleman named, he teaches at the University of Wisconsin, I believe, Alfred McCoy, yeah. and he is a direct descendant of one of the founders of the uh, Peels Brewery. Sure, you know, formerly of Brooklyn, New York, it was one of the biggest regional breweries in the country, maybe one of the biggest in the country for a time. But his, you know, his immediate ancestors were German Americans, and so he writes about their history of starting, what it was like to start a brewery that focused on lighter lager. In the 19th century, and what they dealt with at World War One, and how they and, and how their, the Peel's Brewery collided with the business changes in the mid 20th century, which started to you know of course just wipe out brewery after brewery, and that's how we kind of get to the 1970s and where craft brewery starts craft brewing starts up.
0: And then it goes beyond the reach. I I, I was really I knew about you know for example uh, Pilsner's impact on Italy because. I had Peroni beer, mm-hmm. right? But I didn't know about China, um, and I'd even say mm-hmm. you know Mexico has you know makes Mexican you know lagers that has had a German influence. Um, you know, uh, why do you think this was taken uh, you know so strongly from all these different countries? Well, I, taking, well, I think it's just that the, the
1: I, I think it's what people associate with beer. They just you know pilsner is beer. Lighter lagers, lighter tasting lagers, lighter looking lagers, or light, you know, light beer itself, is just simply beer to most people. And so that's what, you know, that's what works. It's worked for generations now. You know, it's not broke. Why why try to fix it? I, I do personally have a theory, and I throw it out there for your listeners and yourself. I think just by looking at the trends now and, you know, the early 20th century or 21st century still. I think that India Pale Ale is going to overtake Pilsner as a dominant style by the middle of the century. You heard it here, folks. Yes. I think and that is and I look it might not I don't want to set off an argument about what an IPA is, but I it think it certainly whatever doesn't have calls marsh, an IPA.
0: It doesn't have marshmallow in it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm becoming so it curious. Not be. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it should not have stuff floating in it. I don't want haze. Right. But anyway, that's my opinion. Exactly. But I, I do think, you know, look, it, it might not, it'll it be like, like Pilsner. It might not call itself an IPA. Yeah. You know, I think everybody would agree that Sierra Nevada Pale Ale is an IPA. But um, but it, it will be inspired by or based on IPA. And, you know, the, the I think the palate will shift a little bit uh, incrementally toward more
0: bitterness. I, so I, I'm interested to see what happens. So I, I was wondering, what do you think about the future of Kraft Pilsner? Kraft Pilsner, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think, you know, it's it's sort of still, you know,
1: niche. I mean, I think people still regard it as a curiosity. And When I say people, I mean the casual consumer. I know there's a lot of, you know, serious aficionados. They're really into it and, and, and dissecting it. But I think for most craft beer consumers, it's, it's IPA or bust sure. or at least – you know, pale ale. Um, I I do think, you know, I I would not have thought this even five years ago that Pilsner would be having a moment. I I really didn't. I mean, if you think back, you know, seven or eight years, it was sort of session ales. Like we're going to still have IPA. We're just going to make them slightly lower alcohol and slightly less bitter. Like there was no move to, um, Innovate on the logger side, but now you have these fantastic loggers being turned out, and fantastic pilsners, you know, which is a logger. Like I, I think that speaks for itself. I don't think it will ever have on the craft side the same cachet and appeal as IPA. I just think IPA, you know, it got out to too, too, too broad a lead, and it, it can't be overtaken at this point at least in the craft, you know. And I, I think it's going to be the same for macro eventually. Well,
0: I, I think it goes back to the idea of those brewers that were working within the Ryan Hutz uh you know, you, mm-hmm. you can only paint with these colors. Well, IPA throws that out the <laughs> window. Not only can you paint with these colors, but you can throw gravel on the paper. You can tear it up. Um, there's no purity at all. And uh, there's lots of places right. to hide. <laughs>
1: Whereas Pilsner, exact. That's an awesome. That is an excellent point. And I and I, I believe it was Garrett Oliver. And I said I mentioned it somewhere in the book is like, he and other brewers talk about the um. Garrett Oliver is a brewmaster at Brooklyn Brewery, and and they they talk about um. You know, brewers talk about uh, Pilsner as a quote naked beer because there's no place for anything to hide. I mean, it's just if you make a mistake, you, there's, if there's any detrit detritus or or off color or. It, you're going to find it or you're going to smell it. or You're going to sense it. And I'm not knocking. I mean, I can't imagine the effort and the expense given the price of hops that goes into a double IPA or a new England style IPA. But Sure, you know,
0: that is craftsmanship. It can hide Absolutely, a lot. I, I'm not yes. saying they're just th- throwing mm-hmm. it all in the kettle and see what happens. But uh, but there's a lot going on where the pills are s- like simple and direct. Yes, yes, and si- yeah, simple I think is the key. And simple isn't always sexy, but I think that the idea is that you know brewers love pilsners <laughs> you know the actual mm-hmm. so I've, I've yeah. talked to many that have said look uh you know ipas I can you know I gotta make to pay the rent but if at the end of the day i'm I'm gonna drink a miller genuine draft <laughs> i'm gonna I'm gonna right. drink a you know a high life um and, and call it a day uh, to uh, just just to go back a little bit and then go forward with your own writing career um you know can you just give me a quick overview of you know how you came to writing this book about Pilsner. You know along the way, what kind of um, uh, books that you've written or research maybe that that inspired it. And then I'm interested in what what you have next.
1: Yes, thanks. Um, I, well, I, I kind of see Pilsner as the the prequel to a book that I wrote at the start of the decade. It, it, the second edition came out in 2017. It's called The Audacity of Hops, Absolutely. and it's a history of, of craft beer. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so that you know that basically is is the beer world, especially the craft beer world in the U.S. from about the mid 60s on. And so I got kind of curious. I mean, I took a, a detour into writing about wine, which I enjoyed a little bit, and and spirits, craft spirits. But I got back to beer, and I thought, well, you know, what's interesting? Like, what's going on, basically? Um I you know I had paused in the interim, I had two children, and so other stuff got in the way, and I wasn't basically sampling everything I could at the time. Um, but so I thought, you know, why don't I see what happened before? And I know I talk like I, I live at the end of history, and I'm the first person to want to go back and look at beer history. I'm not right. but I thought you know i'm gonna I'm gonna find a way to focus on what came before craft beer sure. you know history didn't history didn't start with IPA. Uh, yeah. So I thought, how do I do that? And I, I was like, boom, Pilsner. As far as what I'm working on next, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm flirting with an idea um, of a history of IPA. I know that's fraught territory. And I've well, it's, long... It's,
0: uh, yeah, growing, you know, you're right in the middle of it, so why not? I know.
1: And I, I've long toyed with um, an idea to write a biography of Michael Jackson, the Beer the beer and Whiskey Critics. I think he's just, he, re- he really deserves more do than he gets. Um, I just return to his stuff again and again. And I just think he was so influential um, for, you know, just establishing beer style. He's the beer hunter. What, you know, the vocabulary we use.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: He. That would be, that would be great. That would give you an excuse to, to yeah. pop over to England. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. So I, I think that, that, you know, what I came away from with the book and why I recommend it to, anyone who's interested in beer is because is that you show uh through um you know you uh, almost a you know a literary way the connections that um beer has made on technology and culture and politics and the way it echoed right back and went right into the beer and so you end up really learning about beer and learning about history which i think the best history books do so You walked a tightrope. Oh, thank you very much, Will. Thank you. You're welcome. My thanks to Tom Acatelli. His book, Pilsner, was published by the Chicago Review Press. He's at Tom Acatelli on Twitter. So it's time for the after party. Go open another beer. Kick your shoes off. It's all right. What am I drinking? Well... A pilsner, of course. I went to the source, you could say, with this pilsner urkel. It's light, it's crisp, gentle sauce, hops, uh, kind of a crackery maltiness. This is what old world pilsners are supposed to taste like, at least as far as I could tell. So this was not the episode I thought that I would have for you this week. Um, had some technical difficulties with my interview with the craft crew this uh, group of men in uh, Connecticut that are expanding uh, the demographic for beer Uh, I don't know we had a great interview and I'm wrestling with Pro Tools at this point so If anybody's a Pro Tools expert and can help me (laughs) reclaim these uh, files I'd be in your debt although I wouldn't mind interviewing the guys again they were wonderful I hope they forgive me these things do happen and uh, you know after 30 something uh, episodes it was bound to happen hoping to make it to Labyrinth Brewing in Manchester Connecticut this weekend Where they've got some of their version of black is beautiful stout. So quite psyched for that. Hope it's still available. Heading back to school uh, this week uh, for some professional development. Before we go in person for however long we do that for. So wish me luck. I wish you luck. I had a great interview recently with the staff at Bottle Stop, which is a uh, small chain of uh, what they call package stores here in Connecticut. So I'm going to work on that one for an upcoming episode. It was nice, good in-person interview, which is uh, a nice, refreshing change from all this phone stuff. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, sip well.